The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. And with us on the show today is Dr. Raymond Moody, the man who pioneered modern research into NDEs. His interest in the subject began with his study of early Greek philosophy and Plato's powerful story of the warrior Ur, the classic tale of near-death experiences told in Plato's Republic. Dr. Moody's Ph.D. in philosophy was followed a few years later by an M.D. in psychiatry and his work in forensic psychiatry. Dr. Moody is best known for his groundbreaking, best-selling 1975 book, Life After Life, in which he coined the term near-death experience. But that was just the beginning of his exploration of how we might understand NDEs in a world given over to the constricted notion that science is the only path to knowledge. Dr. Moody, Ray, welcome to NDE Radio. Thank you, Lee. It's good to be with you. Thank you very oh, it's much. Wonderful. Wonderful to hear your voice, and uh, um, I wanted to say that I first heard you speak at an IONS conference in Durham, North Carolina, a few years ago, yeah. and your topic was to define and emphasize the importance of skepticism as a yeah. philosophic tool for keeping an open mind, yeah. and it, it seemed to me then that you were defining a middle path between faith and science, a path that was uh, necessary for a truer understanding of NDEs. Did I did I get that right? What a great way of putting it, Lee. I never thought about it that way, but that's exactly right. Because um, the way I think of it, you said a path between science and religion, and um, that is very interesting way to put it. Um, the the that's exactly the thought I have, and the way I put it is that. Um, I think, have always thought that this uh, question of life after death is a, um, at least in 2017, is a philosophical question, not yet a scientific question. And even in uh, life after life, I emphasize that. And um, it's, it's always been rather distressing to me when I hear people say, oh, near-death experiences are scientific proof or scientific evidence of an afterlife. And that is precisely why so many, uh, many uh, serious scholars are put off by this area because people um, uh, hear that who really know about scientific methods and so on. And um, this is still a philosophical question. It really is. And it's always been. And um, the breakthrough in this field will come through um, philosophy, I, mm. I think. So it's, uh, you know, since I have an MD behind my name, people think of that as my qualification. But um, I was doing this research 10 years before I went to medical school. So. Yes. And I think that's a very important message to hear because um, I think that there really are entirely new ways to open this question up. Um, But I think it will be um, very difficult to swallow for um, 
what I call the afterlife establishment, people who are sort of dead set on this being, oh, um, scientific. I read this book um, a few months back. Um, it's an excellent book, by the way, that was published by INS. You might know the, uh, the you know, the new and um, collection of all sorts of interesting cases. I think it was put together by INS people in Europe, as I recall. Yes, uh, it was translated from the Dutch, and uh, Ions right. paid for the translation, and mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, some of the editing work was was also done by Ions. Oh, cool! And it's just it's such a wonderful book, and I think to me it was marred by that statement in there. It said, uh, "Well, there's only two ways to research this. One is by um, uh, empathetic uh, phenomenological analysis. That is just sort of." saying what the experience are, or parapsychology, and they drop mm. that in there. And that is a terrible, false dilemma. That's just absolutely not true. Parapsychology is a pseudoscience. As as nice as the people are, and they are my friends, and they are your friends too, and this is not personal. We all have this um, conversation all the time, but um, I just think it's... Um, it's a really unfortunate thing that um, people are dead set on, um, you know, making this into a scientific problem, and they therefore ignore the conceptual philosophical issues, which I think are really the crux of the problem. But anyway, right? I, I was I was just thinking that parapsychology may be a new age version of philosophy without without the depth and background that real philosophy has. You know, I think there's a lot to that. It's people whose emphasis is on science or, you know, they have in this scientism mindset and that they haven't had really any training in in philosophy. Um, I think it's very easy for that kind of mind who gets interested in this kind of thing to just uh, leap forward to saying, well, let's try it scientifically without going through the essential preliminary step of uh, asking what is the proper mode of inquiry. Mm-hmm. And I haven't changed my opinion since uh, I started out in this, or in the opinion I stated in uh, 1974 when I wrote Life After Life, that um, to think of this as some scientific enterprise is barking up the wrong tree. And, but more importantly, it's keeping people from the genuine um, advances that could be made with this if we start looking at it as a conceptual problem. But you know, the really difference is, Plato said it really beautifully. He said uh, in his Phaedo, which in my opinion, that's still the um, the premier or the best rational or best work that's ever been done on um, life, the question of life after death from uh, a genuinely rational perspective. And what um, Plato says is that the, the big problem that's always going to be in any kind of rational afterlife research is, he said two things. There's always got to be some storyline, right? Because the notion of an afterlife, it, even though it may bring beautifully warm, fuzzy images to our mind, uh, um, is nonetheless, it's not a, a clear notion at all. 
And um, so we need some kind of story, Plato said, just to get our thoughts about this started. And um, and the stories we are so fascinated with these days are the near-death experiences. And I have heard thousands and thousands of these, and I can't wait to hear the next one. You know, it's <laughs> it's always a fresh adventure. I know it's and, they're so uh, they're so universal and yet they're so personalized. They are. It's always blended a little bit with the uh, the personality and the temperament of the person. And oh. and then Plato said, as wonderful as the stories are, that in order really to make an advance in the rational understanding of this, we have got to have some set of concepts to link these stories. Um, with the um, with the claim that there is an afterlife, and the situation has not changed since he wrote that um, twenty four hundred years ago, and um, and it's just a shame because it, and another thing about it, see, I mean, I'm not um, looking down on any way and, and on anyone in any way by making this remark, but but I mean, just as a plain matter of observation, if you think about it. I mean, I'm a very weird person in a way because I just love to think about concepts. As I said, in Life After Life, I came to this from the point of view of um, uh, logic and philosophy of language and ancient Greek philosophy. And um, so to me, I just love to think concepts. But, um, you know, the very vast majority of people who um who are interested in this they love the stories but as soon as you start thinking conceptually mm-hmm. they kind of lose interest and in my opinion that is really the main factor that holds back progress in this and and then on top of that that uh when somebody somebody from a rational background does begin to look at these stories then immediately they leap to the conclusion that, oh, let's look at it as scientists, whereas that's just not the right, you know, methodology to use. Matter of fact, yeah. the real problem is we don't have a methodology yet, and that there needs to be some conceptual thinking to figure out one, which incidentally, and um, to me, bragging is about one of the worst, most obnoxious behaviors ever, so I'm not... I hope you will understand when I say this that I'm not trying to brag or anything, but rather to sort of issue this as a challenge and that um, what I think, and I base that on the opinion of some colleagues in various fields from psychology and business and astronomy and uh, logic and uh, just a, a lot of different fields that I think I have solved the essential problem that we do now have new um, concepts that we can apply to this uh, most important question of human existence, because it is. And um, that's one reason I get so irritated about people who just want to act as though this is already solved or... um, Because it's a great intellectual adventure that we're on here. Yes. um, in approaching the biggest question of human existence, it is. I mean, there is nothing bigger than this one, because everything turns on this, in a way. Because 
let's conjecture or assume for a moment that there is an afterlife. Then what? Assuming that is true, then the whole system spins around a time or two on its axis because it's um, everything else is in in contention in a way. If the if there's an afterlife, because every other every, everything else we think we know in this world is um, would be changed around totally. Yes, exactly. Our our concept of reality on Earth is going to be totally changed if we can prove that afterlife. That's right. That's right. um, Uh, uh, Ray, at your recent talk here in Maine, I realized that you and I shared two loves in our childhoods, and we're the same generation, basically. One was for astronomy. Yeah. And the other was for Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge. Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge. <laughs> One was a love of vast beauty, going out with yeah. a telescope at night. And yeah. the other was a love for absurd fantasy. And yeah. uh, I was going to, and I see in your work today that those two things are coming together again, aren't they? Yeah, you know, I have a complete collection of Donald Ducks and Uncle Scrooges from my oh, childhood. I'm going to come one camp them. out at your house for a week yeah. and go through them all again. <laughs> and my, my two grown sons were raised on them. They're now 46 and 43. And then I have a grandson, Ray, who's 10, almost 11, and he reads them assiduously. And, uh, you know, you might be interested to know that both Spielberg and Lucas have both um, uh, attributed a lot of their work to Carl Barks, who was the uh, artist and author of those uh, yes. comics. Yeah. But when we look at um, when we look at the vastness, I mean the the notion uh, implied by NDEs. I mean, I I see that as as a connected to astronomy in a yeah. in a way. I mean the the way that you would look at at uh, the Andromeda Nebula, for instance, or yeah. the face of the moon, or right. or the light coming from the end of the tunnel. I mean, that's all so uh, related in, in the way humans consider the reality of things. Yes. And and then I know you're you are also working right now on um, uh, the idea that nonsense is a is yeah. a, an approach to take. And in fact, I'm looking to your, uh, looking forward to your lecture on Tuesday because I tomorrow. I really am looking forward to you being there because um, I think I can show you. It, although this one is a bit brief, but we can have follow-ups if you want to. But I think that this is, I think, is two hours or something. But even yes. in that time, I think I can show you that if uh, there is a rational process where we can have an entirely new light on near-death experiences that opens up entirely new ways to investigate the afterlife question. And um, See, to me, it's like you probably had the same experience when you were a kid, where I, when I looked through the telescope for the first time, I realized that um, I would never know much of anything, for one thing, which is great with me. I just, I know I'm ignorant. To me, and that doesn't bother me, um, to me, the joy of uh, the pursuit of knowledge is just discovery and learning what you can, right? Mm-hmm. But I realized when I was looking through a telescope my first time that um, 
you know, the question naturally occurs, which I'm sure you thought this too. It's like, well, how big and is this thing we're in and what size is it, right? Well, then your mind rushes out to the wall, right? But then you think, just a minute here, doesn't there have to be something on the other side of the of a wall? Yes. And But then the only other option in common sense seems to be that it goes on forever and ever and ever. And that makes that makes no sense either. So from very early in my childhood, I was completely at peace with the notion that this world that we're living in is unintelligible. That is, that we are bounded on all sides by nonsense. Then I got got hooked on Karl Barks, who, and there's a lot of Donald Duck's and Uncle Scrooge stories, and there's a lot of great nonsense in those stories. I um, yes. You know, I don't know if you remember the one where Donald and the boys are going up to the um, money bin and they have to uh, speak a code into the speaker to to um, get the <laughs> gate to open. So they chant this nonsense rhyme, right? And um, or then there's also, you know, all, when they met exotic tribes, there would be the mock language made to mm. represent them the different languages of the tribes they visited and so on. And um, and so what Karl Barks got me to realize when I was a very young kid was that nonsense is not just one thing. There's a lot of different types of nonsense. And in my career, I have identified over 70 different types, each having its own distinct structure. And I gather from cognitive psychologist friend of mine who got very enthusiastic about my work, and he was saying that he is absolutely sure that once they hook people up with their scanners and so on, they will be able to show that different types of nonsense uh, absolutely recruit different areas of the brain. And um, so we are into a whole new field here. I um, have kind of rest. I'm resting now in the uh, awareness that eventually this is going to have to catch on. It's um, already been published in um, France, but I can't have an American can't find an American publisher yet because um, you know we came over here from it's and we were we had to survive, right? So Americans, the practicality that really is the wonderful feature of our society, and at the same time. That does bring with it a little bit of anti-intellectualism, as Hofstetter said in his famous book about uh, anti-intellectualism among the American people. And that's all mm-hmm. right, because, um, you know, this is the great, where else would you rather live, right? <laughs> and, um, I mean, this is the greatest civilization, in my opinion, that there's ever been. And um, so... Um, I I understand why the majority of Americans just don't like to think, and and that's all right. And at the same time, the um, to think that you're going to get gain ground on the biggest question of existence without putting some hard conceptual thought into it is just a fantasy. And I I find about this whole field that we're in, we is that um, it leaves people unsatisfied, right? They they go to the convention or to the conference and be with everybody who's talking about this, 
with that wonderful look in their eyes and smiling and hugging and all. And mm-hmm. But it leaves people unsatisfied. They hear the charismatic speaker saying, yes, there is an afterlife. And that makes people feel good for about a day. <laughs> and um, then they go home. And then, you know, at the end of the next week, they feel like they need another dose of the charismatic speaker. Well, to me, that is rather abhorrent behavior. I just, I mean, I've always been so uncomfortable with that. And you know, Ray, it's, it's what um, puzzles me is even people who've had profound NDEs and come back with an understanding that love is the entire answer to exactly, it have exactly. so much trouble loving, you know, or, or promoting well, that, course. promoting that knowledge. Yes. Uh, George Ritchie, the first living person I ever heard this from in 1965. To this day, um, Lee, George was just the greatest guy I ever knew. I mean, just the finest human being. And he told me that one day very specifically. He said, you know, Ray, he said, this experience makes your humanity even more of a burden in a way. Mm -hmm. And what he was talking about was exactly that, that you have this vision in which you see for sure the power of love and the importance of love, and yet you find yourself in a day-to-day basis, you know, exploding at people or saying things which you haven't said. And um, so, I mean, I think you're absolutely right in that observation. Consider the um, the part of the story of Ur where at the end, just before we're reincarnated, there's a choice there's a choice uh, given to us of what our next life will be, That's and there's right. also a, a, a toss of the dice that fate will have mm-hmm. a determination as well. That's right. And maybe that mm-hmm. fate part just traps us in our humanity so that we can't be, we can't bring back from heaven what we we learn from heaven. You know, it may be, and I mean that's a good a good point, and. Um, when I think about that, I get to thinking that um, that the essence of this life is to have certain things excluded, right? Like Plato said, it's like we're like horses with blinders on, mm. and um, that there's a large part of reality that we can't perceive. And I, my thought is that that is part of the nature of this experience that we're in, that we couldn't be having this experience we're having now if all of this other knowledge was kind of flooding in on us. And um, Plato also says, and as you know in that story, that uh, at a certain point just before people come back here, they drink of the waters of forgetfulness, he says. Yes. And they forget all they know. And... Um, the modern term for that phenomenon is called um, an event boundary, and um, which is a psychological term. And what an event boundary is, it's like when you are in your living room and you think of something you want to get in the kitchen, right? Mm-hmm. So you walk through the door and you forget what you came in there for, right? That's, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's an event boundary. And it's... Um, it has to do with the fact that my, the mind sort of puts things into little packets or compartments to process. And, and once you get out of that um, little um, 
attack it, then you you lose that access to that information. Yeah. If um, nonsense were one day proven to be meaningful in a sensible way, mm-hmm. would that make it non nonsensical, and thereby weaken its, its well, effectiveness? Well, great point. This is just, and I address that in my book. And thank you for that because um, the essence of nonsense is to be nonsense, right? That mm-hmm. um, and um, that nonsense itself has a structure, and um, and yet over a passage. Time, something that is nonsensical in one frame of reference can um, can uh, can be become uh, intelligible. For example, the example I often use is if you think yourself back to the mindset of an educated person living in the year 1915. All right, mm-hmm. and you hear the following sentence: All four of Ethel's grandparents were lost in a shipwreck long before her mother and father were born. That is is nonsensical in 1915. Mm-hmm. Right? Because then we, we knew about DNA, but we did not know the, uh, the role of DNA in genetics. Uh, we didn't understand gene splicing, gene editing, um, cloning, and so on. But now that we do, we have discovered those things. That makes the sentence, all four of Ethel's grandparents uh, were lost in a shipwreck long before her mother and father were born. It hasn't happened yet to our knowledge, but it's conceivable it could, so it makes sense. And and for reasons that I will elaborate on Tuesday night, and I'm looking forward to seeing your response, but the... Technically speaking, in terms of logic, sentences like there is life after death are unintelligible. Mm-hmm. But I think we have now new means to work on this so that we can bring that concept into the realm of the intelligible. And um, I'm um, really interested to um, to see your response to this. I... Um, um, Matter of fact, this is so, this is stepping out of my bounds here, but, um, I'm just thinking about this. How about, um, we go through this Tuesday and, uh, then, if you want to, we can talk again the next week or whenever you want. I was, I was just going to suggest that myself. I think that's a wonderful idea. I think that's just a terrific idea because now, then I will have been exposed to more of your thinking on this and I'll, I'll be able to, I won't be talking total nonsense to you (laughs) after Tuesday. You know, one of the things that occurred to me was, uh, along with the, the genetic example you gave, such discoveries as the quantum or fractals or MC squared, all of those things must have sat, would have sounded like nonsense to science. Uh, before the time that they were proven to be real. Absolutely. And in science, nonsense, by which I mean, of course, um, meaningless, unintelligible language, not anything bad. Mm -hmm. You know, the word nonsense in ordinary language is a pejorative, right? It's a negative connotation. However, um, it's the strangest thing is that in reality, people just love nonsense. You think that uh, you're a little young to remember, but when I was a kid, there was doo-wop music, right? Like, sha-na-na-na-na-na, sha-na-na-na-na, get a job. Get a job. <laughs> nonsense, Tom's parts were 
played off against the meaningful parts, or hickory dickory dock, the mouse ran up the clock, and so on, or the uh, playground rhymes, and mm. nonsense that children love, and um, Dr. Seuss, and Lewis Carroll. And, I love so Dr. People, Seuss and Lewis oh, Carroll, both. Just, oh, listen, I'm, I'm so looking forward to Tuesday. And you, uh, you quoted something my mother used to say to me that, uh, at that, um, at the speech last Thursday, one bright day in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight. That, yes. that whole thing came, came rushing back to my mind. Oh, uh, Raymond, so I'm, I'm afraid we're out of time for today time. already. Um, perhaps you could tell our listeners how they can find your books. Well, uh, yes, I think they're in a lot of bookstores and of course on Amazon and the the famous one, I guess, is uh, lifeafterlife.com. The, uh, I'm sorry, is the the um, uh, the website is lifeafterlife.com, but the book is Life After Life. Yep. And do you have a a website or a Facebook that yes, does? Yes, it is. It's uh, lifeafterlife.com. Okay. Thank you so much for a fascinating discussion, and we'll continue this next Monday if if we can uh, work that out. Um, and if our listeners would like to listen to this or any of our past programs, just go to our website at nderadio.org. And for uh, information about IANS um, and their upcoming conference in Denver, go to their website, iands.org. And tune in again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more of NDE Radio and more of Raymond Moody. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.